gospel uh, as it is a history as to how we arrived at the gospel. Uh, why that mankind, uh, when you know, when he knew God, he didn't he didn't recognize him as God and honor him as God, and uh, God gave mankind over to a reprobate mind. Uh, but I'm glad that the gospel can penetrate the heart where that the intellect fails. And I'm glad that uh, intellect is not the mode and means through which God is saving sinners because, to be honest, I'm not intellectual enough. Amen. (laughs) So we talked about the history of the gospel. In chapter 2, we talked about the hypocrisy of man, uh, how that man made religion and our dependence upon our own good works uh, is a failure from the beginning. And then chapter 3, we talked about the helplessness of the law. And Paul begins to deal with the Jews uh, more distinctly throughout the book of Romans. And, you know, you might ask the question, and, and, and fairly so, uh, why is so much of the book of Romans about Israel? Uh, he's writing to the church at Rome. Uh, why is there so much of it that deals with Israel as a people? And there's two real answers to that. One is because the church at Rome was like uh, pretty much every other New Testament church uh, at that time. It was a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles. And there was a disproportionate, we could maybe say, statistically, amount of Jews in the church. And that's because the gospel was commanded to go to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Paul following that pattern and the other disciples following that pattern would always go to the synagogue first and present the gospel to the Jews there. And so there'd be some that would believe. And then afterwards, of course, Gentiles would be saved as well. The second reason is because in a broad sense, and we're going to zero in on this tonight, the book of Romans deals with God's plan for the ages. And God's plan for the ages largely deals with Israel as a nation, not exclusively. And Paul's going to show us that tonight in our in our lesson, but it largely deals with Israel as a nation. They're a big part of the plan of God. And so Paul spends some time in the book of Romans reconciling God's plan, how it relates to Israel as a nation, how it relates to Israel spiritually, and what it all means in regards to what God is doing. So we talked about the helplessness of the law, how that the law cannot save or justify a man. And chapter 4 deals with the hope of faith, that uh, even in, in Abraham and in David both, we have an example of how it is faith uh, that gets a man to God, it, that we are justified not by the works of the law, uh, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, the first four chapters deal with the gospel. The second four chapters, uh, that's a funny way to say it, isn't it? The second four or the second quarter of chapters, chapters five through eight, uh, deal with the idea of growth. Uh, And so in chapter number five, Paul deals with the foundation of our growth or why our growth is possible. Uh, In other words, that, that, you know, God has afforded us the, the, the potential and the opportunity to grow in the Lord. Chapter 6 deals with the expectation of our growth or why our growth is reasonable, uh, why it is inappropriate for a Christian not to grow in the Lord, why it is only appropriate for us to advance and develop in our devotion to Him and in our consecration to Him. Chapter 7 deals with the liberation of our growth. If we're going to grow, uh, then we have to recognize that the flesh is a barrier to that and we have to recognize that being made free from the law of sin and death, we can go on and serve the Lord. We could maybe say it this way, why our growth is vital, why it's necessary that we grow beyond that. And then chapter 8 deals with the realization of our growth, how our growth is achievable. And uh, chapter 8, one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Word of God, uh, deals with the, the prospect and process of yielding our life to the Spirit of God and allowing Him to lead, guide, and develop us for the Lord. Tonight I want us to look at chapters 9 through 12. And we'll look at them with this word in mind, the word glory. Uh, probably if you wanted a more descript title for this, it would be God's Grand Plan. And Paul's going to start to reconcile some natural questions that any thinking person would have in regards to how God's dealt with Israel and how God's dealing with the church and what all that means in regards to the economy of God's plan. So let's begin tonight with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into chapter number 9 and just start making our way through and, and, and trying to develop this working knowledge of the book of Romans. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Help us to read it clearly, Lord. Help us to understand it and help us to aptly apply it in our lives that you may receive glory. And may as we leave this place tonight, may we have a clearer understanding of the word of God and may we be uh, more able students of it that we might glorify you in all that we do. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, Romans chapter number 9. I want to begin in verse number 1. We'll read down from verse 1 to verse number 5. Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish myself, wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now, to give you a little bit of a structure to what we're looking at tonight, you'll notice as you go down through this chapter that Paul asks some rhetorical questions. And maybe rhetorical is not the the appropriate word. He he does what I have a tendency to do, or maybe I do what he did, uh, sometimes to ask a question that we reckon must be on the mind of any thinking person. And so Paul asked these sort of, uh, you know, hypothetical questions. I don't know. There's probably a better linguistic term than I'm uh, able to recall at the moment. But for instance, in verse number 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Uh, he goes on to say in verse 19, thou wilt then say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Verse 30, he says, What shall we say then that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? In other words, Paul recognizes that in what he's spoken about in regards to Israel and her relationship to the Lord and to the law, that there are some big questions that have to be answered. Uh, if, if God had, had worked in this amazing way in the history of Israel, and yet it had produced no righteousness within them as a people, then naturally any thinking person would look and say, well, what does that mean? Did the plan of God fail? Uh, did what God sought to do through Israel fail? In other words, is, is Calvary really just a great tragedy? And, and is Calvary really just a, a, a great miscalculation on God's part in, in regard to how he thought Israel would respond? So let's title chapter 9 under this thought, the criticism of God's plan. And and Paul, knowing that any thinking person would have these natural questions, he systematically just pieces them apart, deconstructs them, and shows how that in fact that Calvary was not a great tragedy, that the crucifixion was not a, a, a great fly in the ointment of God's plan, but that in fact, as opposed to being a bug, it's a feature in what God has sought to do through the ages. And really chapters 9, 10, 11 all, are are occupied with this thought. So the first thing we see in the first five verses is a defense of God's patience. Now, I'd remind you, of course, it is Paul that is pinning this down. These are not Paul's words. These are the words of the Holy Spirit. And when he says, "I, I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, he is not only bespeaking a burden in his own heart, but I think he's also revealing to us the heartbreak of God at the unbelief of Israel as a people. It's almost as though God's saying, if there were some way for them to be saved, if there were some way that that I could merely force them or could do so in such a way that would retain my holiness or integrity, I'd do it if I could. But the fact is, the only way for them to be saved is the only way for Gentiles to be saved, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. He goes on to sort of describe all of the things that God did in seeking to reach Israel as a people. He says in verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. And when he says adoption, (coughs) he's not merely talking about adoption in the legal sense that we think of, but rather that it was always God's plan for Israel that they come into the fullness of a real relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. Not that they be held at a distance or remain servants of the law, but that they become sons of God. He says, and the glory... He could be speaking about the glory of the fact that they're God's chosen people, but I think rather he's probably talking about the manifest presence of God that would make itself visible and, and seen at the temple. He says, and the covenants, the, the uh, agreements that had been entered into, and there are several of them, but no doubt he had the Abrahamic covenant as one of them at the forefront of his mind. And the giving of the law, whenever God gave uh, the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, and the service of God, that they were enlisted into serving the Lord 
Lord and knowing and understanding all of the pictures of Old Testament worship and what they implied and the promises, the things that God has promised to Israel as a people. It's almost as though Paul's saying this. Don't think for one moment that God did not give Israel as a people every opportunity and benefit in trusting in Him. Uh, lest we accuse God of having sort of blindsided Israel, He reminds them, hey, they've been given a lot of opportunities and a lot of potential. God has been, we could say it this way, very patient with Israel as a people. He says, whose are the fathers? And then probably the greatest of all, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. In other words, not only did they have all that, but the Messiah walked visibly, visibly bodily amongst them and they saw his righteousness. Uh, this is maybe more implicit than explicit, but we can see in this language that Paul's saying, hey, God's done his job in revealing his person and promises and processes to Israel. So we see a defense of God's patience. Verses 6 through 13, we see a defense of God's promise. He says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. He said, I don't want you to believe that it's not made any impact. He says, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now I'll go ahead and tell you there's a lot of truth we could, could mine out of this and there's a lot of perspectives that I think are valid about this. But oftentimes when people read this portion of Scripture, they miss the point that Paul is making here. When he says they are not all Israel which are of Israel, his purpose is not to try to draw some uh, you know, mighty distinction between just Israel ethnically or nationally and Israel spiritually, but rather what he's doing is he's saying, I know you look at Israel right now and you see them in unbelief and you see them in rebellion and you see them in rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he reminds them that God's intention was always more than merely calling an earthly people. It was for them to be spiritually transformed and made into sons of God. And what he's saying is don't take the rejection of many as being a nullifying, voiding uh, thing upon the promises of God. And then he enforces that further by saying, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. In other words, he's saying God never said that just because you had Jewish blood running through your veins that you were a child of God. That was never the terms of God's relationship with Israel. It was always that they might seek him by faith. And he's saying don't think for one moment just because some in Israel or even many in Israel have rejected him that that has thwarted the plan of God. He said it was not in Abraham that they'd be called, but in Isaac. Isaac, of course, being the child of promise. That's what he says, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, God, uh, Paul's going to go on to describe in, in, in very clear terms what he expected was running through the mind of his readers. Down in verse 30, he says, What shall we say then that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, uh, even the righteousness which is of faith, but Israel which have followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness? In other words, he's saying, I know that your tendency is to suggest how unjust God is, because here you have Jews that have followed the law, but they haven't been made righteous. But then you have Gentiles who didn't have the law, and yet through simple faith they've come to know Christ. How unjust and out of keeping that is with God and His dealings, because the Jew could only view God through the prism of the law. That's how they knew Him. And Paul's reminding them that it was never through the works of the law that God dealt with man. It was always by grace. The purpose here is not to suggest that uh, those that come to Christ have no volitional choice in it, as some would have you to believe from this text. When it uses the term election, it's not suggesting election at the expense of anyone's free will. One of the fascinating facts in the Old Testament, you'll find that the word elect only one time refers to an individual. Many times it refers to Israel as a nation, but only one time does it refer to an individual. And that individual, that's in, I believe it's Isaiah 45, when it talks about the servant of the Lord. 
In other words, who is the only individual that God's ever chosen? Who's the only individual that God's ever looked at and said, they're righteous, I accept them? That's the person of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we become part of that elect group in God? How do we become part of that choice, status, and station? Well, by being found in Christ. Not having our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, which is in God. So when he talks about the election of grace, he's talking more, we could say, about about a process of regard here. And and what he's saying is, you know, it's always been God's intention and plan that salvation not be a matter of a man's works being justified by them in the eyes of God, but rather that it be by grace. This is how he dealt with Jacob and Esau. This is how he dealt with Isaac in the Old Testament. This has always been the case. And on the whole, Paul's purpose in saying this is he's defending God's promise. And he's saying there's some that would say, well, all these promises to Israel have failed. Paul's saying, now, wait a minute. What exactly did God promise and who exactly did he promise it to? Saying, yes, there are earthly promises to Israel and God will one day fulfill all of those. But the promises that regarded justification in the eyes of God were never promises that were made to Israel after the flesh exclusively. It was always by grace and it was always according to promise. And so those Jews that have sought him in faith, They've been made partakers of that promise. They have been justified. But he said that doesn't limit it only to those that are uh, Jews after the flesh, but also to all those that by faith come to Jesus Christ. So we see a defense of God's promise. Then we see a defense of God's prerogative. Verse number 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, does that mean God's picking out a baseball team and he likes some and he doesn't like others? The Calvinists would have us believe that that's what God's doing. He just looks at some and says, you just got a good look about you. You're going to go to heaven and looks at others. And I'd probably be one of them and look at me and say, I'm sorry, but you just don't pass muster. Is that what God's doing? Is that what Paul's uh, saying here? Well, let him answer for himself. God forbid. He says, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he harden. Now, again, the Calvinists would uh, run to this verse. They love this verse. It's a shelter. It's a, it's a buttress for them. They love to run here and say, well, see, he chose Pharaoh to reject him. But, you know, two things about that. One, if you go back and look at the record, you'll find that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is described in three ways. There's times that the Bible merely says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Then there's times that the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then there's times that the Bible says that uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what does that suggest to us? Well, it suggests to us this, that God acted in a way that, of course, he understood would harden Pharaoh's heart. But he did not make the choice to harden Pharaoh's heart. Only Pharaoh could make that choice. Uh, Pharaoh instead made his own choice. That didn't escape God's uh, will and wisdom. God, of course, knew that that would take place uh, so that God was not surprised by it, but nor was it the choice of God. There's a second thing we have to notice about this passage, and that's that each individual that's spoken of here, all of them are either in a direct or indirect way, either the mother or father of a people. And this chapter is not talking about God picking some to heaven and picking some to hell, but it's talking about how God deals with nations and peoples. He's going to go on to describe how that God has permitted the rejection of the Messiah by Israel that he might save Gentiles. And that when you get to the end of God's plan, God's going to bring Israel spiritually as a people into a relationship with God through the power of the gospel that was not even possible had God not had mercy on the Gentiles. The overall point that Paul is making, however, in the voices or the verses that we've read here is simply this. One, he's God and he can do whatsoever he will. But number two, that the things that he's doing, he's doing because there is a grander plan behind them in the first place. That he is not doing this at the expense of man's free will choice, but he is doing this in concert with man's free will choice. And that as God, he has every right to do that. In other words, it's not just... He can do this because he's God and has authority. It's He can do this because he's God and he his relationship with time is different than yours and mine. He understands who will accept him. He understands who will reject him. And he does not choose that for any person. And he's made provision and salvation available for any person to come to Jesus Christ. But of course he wouldn't be God if he didn't know the end from the beginning. 
And so rather than saying, well, God's choosing this one and God's choosing that one, what Paul's saying is, no, he's God. And he's weaving a beautiful tapestry that takes into account the free will volitional choices of mankind so that they are free and they are legitimate and the choices they make are indeed their choices, but that none of them thwart the sovereignty of God or his providence. So we could say it this way. It's a defense of God's prerogative. He's saying only God could do this because only God is this way. And therefore, we can trust that. And then we see a defense of God's providence more distinctly. Verse number 19. He says, Thou wilt then say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In other words, if we're all just, you know, uh, dancing to destiny, then, then how, could we, how could we criticize him? Well, he says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? And I want you to notice very clearly and carefully how he says this. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. What is Paul driving at here? Why is he saying this in the way that he's saying it? Well, I would just have you notice, number one, there is not necessarily a direct correlation between the vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor and the vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Rather, what Paul is saying here is twofold. One, God's not done with the lumps that he's shaping. And he's saying we can foolishly charge God and suggest that he has found fault, and we can foolishly charge God and suggest that in fact, he's messed up in our life and, and, and that he's made a mistake with us. Or we can so, or trust his sovereign purpose that he's doing all things correctly, appropriately, and according to his will. In other words, the potter has the capacity to look at the lump and know and understand what the potential is to be made from it. He knows how much material there is, and he knows how it can be formed and fashioned in a way that's going to bring him the most glory. Again, there's some that would take this verse and try to uh, strong arm it into suggesting, well, I'm sorry, you know, it's funny, I've never met a Calvinist whose kids want an elect. Uh, it, it's amazing, always them, their wife, the people they love, they're always elect, they're always apart, but everyone else, uh, you know, sorry for you, but you're just stuck out in the rain. Uh, but rather what Paul is saying here is that God has a sovereign purpose in all of this, particularly in regards to peoples and nations, uh, because, again, this isn't really talking about individuals. It's talking about people groups. And he's saying, you know, God how, understands how best Israel can be used and fit within the economy of his purpose. He goes on to describe not only the sovereign purpose trusted, but the scriptural precedent that is testified. He says in verse number 25, as he saith also in O.C. Now, that's a New Testament way of saying Hosea. I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there they shall, be, shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah, which is a New Testament way of saying Isaiah, also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of, ch of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. And that's, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's saying this is not out of keeping with what God's already revealed in his word. God already has told us that Israel would go through a season and period of rebellion where the only witness in the nation would be that of a faithful remnant. And he's reminding them that God has not failed in his counsels and purposes regarding Israel as a nation. This is in perfect keeping with what God said would happen. It'd be very easy to foolishly charge God and say, well, God must have messed up with that nation of Israel. But Paul says, no, things are happening exactly like they're supposed to. So we see a defense of God's providence. Then we see in verse 30 through 33 a defense of God's plan. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Let me stop there. He's saying if you're not careful, you'll be apt to think that God messed up when he gave the law. 
you'll, you'll begin to think that in giving the law, God gave it to the wrong group of people or that in giving the law, he gave the wrong thing because it did not have the desired effect. He's saying you look at Israel as a nation at large and they've rejected the Messiah and they're living in rebellion and they have judicial blindness over their eyes. They still to this day do not accept Christ as their Messiah. Uh, if the purpose of the law was to make them righteous, then certainly the law would have failed. And by the same token, if the only way to make them righteous was the law, then you'd have to ask yourself, how did Gentiles become a part of the body of Christ? And he's saying, no, you're missing the purpose of the law. He says in verse 32, wherefore, why is that the case? Well, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now, who is that stumbling stone? Well, book first Peter tells us very clearly uh, who that is but but Paul gives us an idea here in uh, verse 33 as well as it is written behold I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed I don't want to get ahead in my lesson before I get there but basically what Paul is saying in this portion of scripture is that this is not out of keeping with God's plan in fact it is the only possible uh, course of God's plan uh, he's already established that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He's already established that the law doesn't have that capacity. And he's saying the problem is not with the law and the problem was not with God. The problem was that Israel, instead of responding to that in faith, seeing their own depravity and hopelessness that they couldn't in their own righteousness save themselves and looking for a Savior that could do it for them, they instead doubled down in their own self-righteousness and boasted in the law. He's saying the reason that Gentiles are born again is not because of their unrighteousness, but because they had no formal law to lean upon. They had only the law of their conscience. And as soon as that was disabused of them, they sought the Lord in faith. Now, we could maybe say it this simply. Uh, Paul says, uh, you know, you, you want to ask me, why is it that Jews have rejected him and Gentiles have accepted him? And Paul says very simply, because they've made the choice to do so. Because God made the offer of faith to both people groups and some of them accepted that and Others rejected that. And that's not a short circuit of God's plan. It's not a thwarting of God's plan. God always saw and knew and understood that it would only be a remnant that would believe of the nation of Israel until the day that God made of Israel a nation unto God, which one day he will do. And Paul deals with that uh, in the next chapter or two. But he's saying none of this in any way disproves the plan of God. So we could say chapter 9 is a criticism of God's plan. Chapter 10, we see the rejection of God's plan. Why did this happen in Israel's experience? Well, we see three things, four things. I guess I better make sure before I go saying that. Four things uh, in chapter number 10 under this idea of, of Israel's rejection of God's plan. Look with me first at verse number one. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, there's a couple things that we ought to say here. One, there's some people... Uh, that would have us to believe. And I shouldn't just say some people. The Calvinists believe this. The covenant theologians believe this. And, and this isn't just pick on Calvinists today, but we're in these chapters that Calvinists run to a lot. And so it's worthwhile. You've heard me say, if you walk by a rock, you better kick it because you don't know when you'll be back by there to kick it again. And uh, the Calvinists and the covenant theologians, this, this verse messes them up in two ways. One, because they would say, nowhere in the Bible does it ever talk about praying for people to get saved. They would say praying for people to get saved is foolish. They're either going to get saved or they're not going to get saved. You shouldn't pray for them to get saved. God's already decided that. Well, they're going to have to do something with Paul because Paul was there praying to God for Israel to be saved. He was praying for his kinsmen to believe on Jesus Christ. And then there's a second problem it presents to him, which is this. They believe that God's done with Israel. And Paul's going to go on to, to describe very clearly that in the overall economy of God's plan, God's not done with Israel. They would say the church has replaced Israel. But Paul's going to show us that that is not true. But even in just this immediate present moment, he's saying, hey, God's still saving Jews that will come to Christ. That's not ended. God's not done with that. But why is it that they as a nation at large do not receive the Messiah? Well, he tells us, verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Why do some go to heaven and some go to hell? Is it because God's picking out a baseball team? Nope. It's because some submit themselves to the righteousness of God because they've chosen to do so and others choose not to do so. That word knowledge must have stung his Jewish readers because they would have considered themselves the most biblically literate people walking the earth. And he's saying, but there's something you've missed for all of your knowledge that you have. 
And that's that this entire spectrum of the Old Testament law and what it represents is not the righteousness that's within you, but it's the righteousness that's beyond you and is only within God. And you think you can attain to that, but he says that's not true. They being ignorant of God's righteousness. And you can see this in their relationship to Christ and his earthly ministry. Time and again, Christ showed the hypocrisy of their self-righteousness. They, they had twisted and warped and changed the standard of the law to try to make it fit and form around their life. And, and Christ just cut through all of that. And Paul, Paul's doing much the same thing. He said the problem is you've not submitted yourself unto the righteousness of God. So we see Israel's offense here at a basic level. It's self-righteousness, dependence upon self. Well, why would they do that? I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm very ready and willing to not depend upon myself for. There's some things I can do. You know, I can change my own oil, you know. I mean, I can, I can put a new float valve in a toilet, right? Uh, I'm probably not going to be doing open-heart surgery on myself, you know. There are some things I'm ready to admit that I am ill-equipped for. Why is it that Israel would not submit to the righteousness of God? Well, verse number 4 shows us what Israel's obstacle was. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven. And I love Paul's parentheses here. That is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, if you're going to claim you can ascend up to heaven, then you're going to have to denigrate who Christ is. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. If you're going to claim some kind of of, of spectral inner knowledge, uh, then you're going to have to disregard the witness of the resurrected Savior. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, and he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy here. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Very simple what Israel's obstacle was, and it was Christ. He was their stumbling block. They did not know how to receive him. They did not know how to regard him because their self-righteousness had blinded them. They had come to believe that they were part of a special group of people already spiritually satisfactory to God. And Christ came and showed them a level of righteousness that they could not fathom. And instead of seeing that righteousness and submitting it to it and, and recognizing that it was more pure and more transcendent than their own, they nailed him to a cross as a male factor to establish their own self-righteousness. They didn't merely ignore him, they crucified him. Because to endorse his life and his words and, and, and his works was to admit that they themselves were insufficient. This, by the way, is why still today the preaching of the cross is an offense to them which perish. If you've got a Savior, it's because you're a sinner. And people don't want to acknowledge that. So we see Israel's obstacle. Now, someone would say, well, preacher, it's easy to be hard on them. But, you know, I mean, here you are, 2,000 years of Christianity at your back. I mean, you know, it's easy for you to say that. But what about Israel? They didn't even have an opportunity. Well, Paul says they did. We see Israel's opportunity, verses 10 through 15. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, Paul's saying, they've not done this because they were appointed to do this. They haven't done this because there was no other way and no other choice. I was talking to uh, Brother Tom and Brother Frank last night. We were talking about the Bible. And uh, we mentioned as an example of this Judas in the New Testament. Uh, God knew that Judas was going to betray Christ. And Christ knew that Judas was going to betray Christ. And yet we find that Christ treated him with such tenderness, such compassion, such open-handedness, that when they all sat around the table and Christ said, one of you is going to betray me, nobody turned and looked at Judas. They all thought it would be them before it would be him. He was given every opportunity to repent, every opportunity. Christ even makes a statement earlier in his ministry. He says, offenses must come, but woe unto them by whom they come. It'd be better for that man if he had never been born. That was him in grace trying to say, you know, Judas, you don't have to make this choice. You don't have to make this decision. You say, well, that's folly, preacher. God knew that he was going to do it. Well, if you used Judas, you wouldn't think it was folly. He had a legitimate choice. God knew the choice that he was going to make and the plan of God accounted for and incorporated that choice. But not because God made that choice for him, 
Simply because God, of course, knows all things. And so we find him to be in many ways a tragic picture or type of Israel as a people. God gave Israel every opportunity that they needed to receive their Messiah. He preached a, a gospel of the, of the coming kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he came and, and, and proclaimed the way of righteousness, the way of a kingdom, all these different things early in his ministry. In fact, you find that his tone does not change until about Matthew chapter 12 uh, when the Pharisees blaspheme the Holy Spirit and attribute the, the works of God to that of the Holy Spirit or, or the works of the Holy Spirit to that of the devil. And, and Christ basically says, if you won't receive his his witness, then there's no hope for you. And he turns his attention, begins to talk about the mysteries of the kingdom and the parables of the kingdom and, and how the kingdom of God would exist during that duration of time between Israel's rejection and the coming millennial kingdom. But up until that moment, he gave them every opportunity. John the Baptist was Elijah for them. Undoubtedly, uh, Nero or Diocletian would have been the Antichrist to them. Undoubtedly, the Diaspora would have been the tribulation to them. All these things were orchestrated such that Israel had a legitimate choice to receive their Messiah. Did God know they would reject Him? Well, of course God knew that. Because God knows all things. Did He make the choice for them? No. He stood on the hillside and He wept over them and He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, how oft would I have gathered thee under my wings as a mother hen doth her chicks, and thou would not. To claim that Israel was just dancing to their pre-programmed divine destiny is to call Christ a liar. He says, I would have, but ye would not. Not I would not, ye would not. Paul says it in this way. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. Their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Esaias is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that had asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. In other words, Israel had a legitimate opportunity to receive their Messiah, and they chose to reject him. We gave a little title for it. We could just call verse 21 Israel's obstinance. God says, I didn't whisper to you. I screamed for you to turn. I, I, I didn't just hint at it. I begged you. And God gave Israel every opportunity. But still they rejected him. We could call this the rejection of God's plan. Chapter 11 deals with the wisdom of God's plan. Now, we've had a couple things that have happened so far in these two chapters. In, in the first chapter that we've looked at, we've seen where Paul has thoroughly defended God's right to conduct himself in the way that he's conducted himself and that he's perfect and he's righteous, that he's got a plan behind all this. Chapter number 10, he showed how that Israel is complicit in the rejection of God's plan. They have willfully, volitionally rejected the Messiah. And now, Paul has to reconcile those two things. Because... We do not want to make God the victim of Israel's obstinance. He wouldn't be much of a victim <laughs> if, if man could thwart him. And so here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to talk about the wisdom of how God has orchestrated all of this. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Paul breaks forth in, in, in praise at the end of it. And every time that I dig in and read it with him, man, I want to take a lap too. Because when you think about how perfectly, elegantly, beautifully God has woven the affairs of man, then it's a wondrous thing. Notice number one, we see a difficulty that's addressed in verse number one through six. I say then, hath God cast away his people? And that's a very simple question. The covenant theologian would say yes. They would say God is done with Israel. They've chosen the church. And God's chosen the church. And now Israel has no part in the economy of God. What does God say? Well, God says, God forbid. And Paul says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I don't think that Paul's saying that because he's saying, I don't think he's saying, well, I hope not because <laughs> I'd be part of them. I think what he's saying is obviously not 
because I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. That has to count for something. That God chose a Jew to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Evidently, God's still cooking something up. Evidently, he's still working. Evidently, he still has a handle on this. Verse 2, he says, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. And when he again, when he says foreknew, uh, it's obvious he's not talking about uh, predestining people to salvation because here he's talking about Israel in their unregenerate state. He's talking about Israel nationally. And he's saying, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias. That's a New Testament way of saying Elijah. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now again, it's easy to get trumped up and tripped up on that term election. But what is elected here is not the individuals necessarily, but the process. That it not be by the righteousness of the law, but that it be of grace. That God's choice was not that Israel nationally necessarily through the mechanism and service of the law would would know him in salvation, but rather that by the grace of God, they could put their faith in him. He says in verse number six, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. I don't really know how, how much clearer it could be. I don't really know how much more explicitly God could say it. If it's of grace, it's not works. If it's of works, it's not of grace. Now, why is Paul saying this? Well, because there's two possible thorny questions that could be tripping up his readers. One would be, does that mean God is done with Israel? And Paul says, no. It's always been God's process that Israel during a time of rebellion and Israel during the time of Elijah was in a time of national rebellion would reach a remnant of people that would know him personally and meaningfully and know him in a legitimate relationship. God's always done that. He's saying God's doing that again now today. He's doing it through the process of the church, but he's doing it now today just as he always did then. And then the second question has to be asked, If God's purpose in giving the law was to make them righteous, why are they not righteous? Paul's saying, no, it was always by grace and not by works. These men that had not bowed the knee to the image of Baal, uh, they had not refused to do that because they were such uh, legitimate followers of the law. At that time, legitimate worship of God was oppressed and suppressed in the nation of Israel. They did so in faith because they believed God and they believed his word. They trusted him. It was always by grace. So we see a difficulty addressed. Then we see a jealousy provoked. Verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election, meaning this remnant of people, hath obtained it. In other words, Israel's a nation hasn't, but this small group of Jews, they've obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, we have another parenthetical statement here. And you know what we've already said this week to do with parenthetical statements and that it's important to, it's meant to be taken as a parenthetical statement. So it's a good thing to take it, set it to the side, read the text without it, then read the parenthetical statement, gain an understanding of both of them, then put that parenthetical statement back into your reading of it and read it in its context. So let's read it without it. He says, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded unto this day. Now he says in verse 8, in this parenthetical statement, according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. Now why is Paul making this parenthetical statement, quoting Old Testament scripture? Because he is denoting to them that God had already said this was going to happen. This isn't a surprise to God. This isn't a failure on God's behalf. This was not a a misstep. This was by the design of God. Now why would God do that? Verse number 9, David saith, let their table, meaning their uh, form of public worship, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Is God's intent behind this to throw them away forever? God already prophesied in the Old Testament that they would not receive the law in the right perspective that it would instead become a blinding force in their life, that they would see it as as the substance of their own self-righteousness, 
So does that mean that God intended for them to be done away with? That God is turning his back on them? No, he says, God forbid. But rather that through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. Well, how'd that happen? Well, very simply, because of their rejection of God, they crucified the Messiah. You and I are born again because they rejected the Messiah. What was God attempting to do for them? Well, he says, for to provoke them to jealousy. In other words, God's intention was, how do we say this right? God gave them a law to show them there was something missing in their life. They took it as a cue as to how awesome they were. (laughs) God gave them a law to show them you're not righteous. And they took it as credentials as to how righteous they were. Though they were dead inside, though they were empty, though they were morally corrupt in their dealings with one another, they still took it as an endorsement of themselves and their stature. And so how is God going to get their attention? Well, I'll tell you how he's going to get their attention is by manifesting through Gentiles that had not all the benefits that they had, the righteousness which is of God without the law. That's how Paul said it in chapter number three, the righteousness which is by faith. In other words, to show, to prove to them that righteousness doesn't come by the law, he's going to save rotten old Gentiles like you and me and make us new creatures in Christ Jesus as a proof text to them, as a precedent, that salvation does not come by the works of the law, but by the righteousness of faith. Now, you might be saying, well, preacher, but to this day, Israel is still rejecting the Lord, and that's true. But you know, there's going to come a day when they as a nation are going to turn to the Lord. And part of that process is they're going to see fully, thoroughly, the bankruptcy of their own self-righteousness. Throughout the tribulation period, there's going to be uh, witnesses going out and preaching the gospel. There's going to be testimony of the grace of God even during that dark hour. And all that is part of God dovetailing the, the, the circumstances of Israel's history to such a place that they might look and see him whom they have crucified and recognize that the law, as opposed to being a salve to them, has been a crutch to them and has been a blind, a veil to them, and they'll turn to him. So we see a jealousy provoked. And then we see a testimony produced. Paul says in verses 12 through 15, Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and that's what happened, because they rejected the Lord and and they were scattered and they crucified him, that has been the richest thing that's ever happened to the world. And the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. In other words, Paul says, I'm bragging on them so that you will notice the work that God's doing in their life and that it's not being done through the law in your life. He says in verse 15, for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving them of, be, of them be but life from the dead? I'm not going to take the time to get into it because we simply don't have it. But you ought to sometime go back and look at the miracle performed, the raising of Jairus' daughter, and look at it through the prism of these four verses. Because in many ways, I think Jairus' daughter is a picture of Israel as a nation, and, and her resurrection is a picture of them believing on the Lord at the end of the tribulation period. But Paul says, you know, one of these days, what a glorious thing it's going to be whenever Israel as a nation turns in faith to the Messiah. And what a testimony it will be when we see that God can save even those that nailed his son to the cross. We see a testimony produced. And then we see an analogy that's employed. Verses 16 through 24. And I wish I could just stay here for the next 30 weeks, but Tom won't let me do it. So we're going to have to just run past it. He says in verse 16, For if the first fruit be holy... The lump is also holy. Now he's using the analogy here talking about uh, about bread, about dough, and talking about the purity of it and saying basically what your starter is is what's going to be produced by the rest. If the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. Then he uses an agricultural metaphor. He says, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. Simply meaning what it starts with is what it produces, Right. Uh, If you start with the root of an apple tree, it's going to grow up an apple tree and throw off apple branches and put off other apples. Now, who is the the branch? Well, uh, we're told in in John chapter number 15, Christ said, I'm the true vine and ye are the branches. He says, and if some of the branches were broken off and now being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. 
But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. What does Paul mean when he says this? He says, well, here are you as Gentiles. Remember, he had said earlier that he was, he was taught, you and I as Gentiles, we're wild olive trees. We weren't originally in the scope and process of the plan that God had revealed to Israel. We could call that the speculative plan, the plan that God had presented as a potential for them. But because of their rejection as, as a nation, we have been grafted in and made part of God and his family and that relationship. And he, he warns those Gentiles to not be high-minded in their relationship to the Jews. For this reason, he says, uh, if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. He's reminding, it ain't you that's holding on to the root. It's the root that's holding on to you. It's not you that's given the root life. You only have life because you've been grafted in. It's the root that deserves all the glory. He says, thou wilt say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's what the covenant theologians say. God rejected Israel so that the church could be grafted in. See, it's clear as day. God chose them. Paul says, well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And now standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. Now, is he talking about individuals? Well, I don't believe he is. Certainly when he's talking about the branches that were cut off, he's talking about Israel as a nation. When he's talking about the branches that were grafted in, he's talking about the Gentiles as a people. And so he's not saying, well, if you don't behave and, and live right, God's going to cut you out. Instead, what he's saying is the only reason you as a Gentile have any part in this is because of the grace, the goodness of God. And Gentiles as a people don't need to boast in their status any more than the Jews should have in their status. Listen, man, I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I, I, I'm, proud to, I, I'm proud to be a Tennessean. Uh, I'd probably fight with you over Corrington. You know? I'm proud of those things. What a blessing that is. I'm, I'm proud to have been born in this country. But the good things in my life don't come from me being born in this country. They come from the grace of God. The good things in my life don't come uh, from any form of government. They come from the Lord. And God didn't save me because he loves Americans and hates everyone else. He saved me because I placed my faith in him. He's warning them against really a form of anti-Semitism. And he's warning them against looking with, uh, with a cynicism towards the uh, Jews as a nation. And there's a lot of that in the world today. He says in verse 23, and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. In other words, he's saying the reason they're out is not because they're Jews and God bears a grudge and they nailed Christ to the cross. The reason they're out is because they won't put their faith in him. If they put their faith in him, he'd graft them in. And any Gentile that rejects him won't be a part of him. Saying none of this regards uh, cultural or ethnicity or even national identity. It transcends all of those things. He's speaking in large people groups only because their minds were off apt to think in those terms. Remember, he's writing to a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. And he's saying, listen, you Gentiles, God didn't save you because he was mad at the Jews for nailing Jesus to the cross. And you Jews, uh, you know, God is not bearing a grudge against you and wouldn't save you. There's one distinguishing factor between the two of you. Have you put your faith in Christ or have you not? It says in verse number 24, For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, he's saying, if anything, it should be easier for God to save a Jew. And certainly he has the capacity to do so. So then we see some clarity provided. And I'll go ahead and give you a sneak preview that uh, we're going to make our first misstep tonight and we're not going to get to chapter number 12. But that's okay. We'll catch up with it tomorrow. Uh, but notice there's some clarity that's provided in, in verse 25. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, remember how we define mystery, biblically speaking. A mystery is not something that you've got to ferret out and you've got to deduce out and got to figure out. That's, not, that's how the world thinks of a mystery. But a mystery in the Bible is something that at one time was not disclosed to humanity but now has been. And there are several mysteries in the New Testament. And if, if, if a mystery is a secret, they're the worst-kept secret in the world because God put them in his Bible. 
So he's not saying this is something you've got to figure out. He's saying at one time man couldn't have known this. God hadn't revealed it. But now it's been revealed unto us. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So there's a few things I think we need to notice about this. Uh, one, he's talking about the judicial blindness upon Israel as a nation and saying that is not evidence that God has done with them, but rather that is a part of the plan and process of God in bringing them into a relationship with him. When he says all Israel shall be saved, this, by the way, and, and we could probably disagree about this and, and a thousand other things, but uh, whenever in the Old Testament it says a nation shall be born in a day, I don't think that happened in 1948. I don't think that's what it's talking about. You look in the book of Zechariah and that passage, it's talking about the Messiah coming to the throne and Israel having a legitimate relationship with him. Now, I, I guess it's important that Israel was born as a nation in 1948 or really earlier than that with the Armistice Treaty and all that and you know, when you actually start looking at history, it gets a little muddy. But I think when it says that a nation shall be born in a day, I think it's talking about born like you and I got born again. And it's saying there's going to come a day that Israel is going to turn to their Messiah. So when it talks about salvation here, I think though the word salvation and saved can be used in a lot of different contexts, I think it's using it in the spiritual context that we are most familiar with. And the reason I believe that is because of what he goes on to quote. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. Well, we know when this is going to happen, right? It's when the Deliverer comes, when Christ returns, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So it's not just saying simply a nation would be born. And it's not when it says uh, shall be saved, it's just merely talking about a temporal salvation or a rescuing Rather, it's talking about a spiritual transaction that will take place. Now, someone would say, well, this would, would suggest to me a sort of Jewish universalism that every Jew know what it's saying is that when that time comes, those that are alive and are a part of the nation of Israel, when they see their Messiah, God will do such a work in their heart that they will turn and believe on him. Now, you might say, well, there it is, preacher. God's going to choose for him. No, you just happen to not know things the way God knows things, and God already knows what's going to happen. It's not saying he's going to choose it for them. He's saying that he already knows what's going to happen in that day when they look upon him whom they've pierced. And he had already promised and made a covenant with them that that would be the sum total and result of their relationship with him. As concerning the gospel, verse 28 says, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, the process of God for these things, they are beloved for the Father's sake. In other words, again, when he talks about election here, he's not talking about choosing some to heaven and choosing some to hell, but rather he's talking about the processes of God in carrying out his plan through the ages. And he's saying, from where you sit, they're enemies. But that's for your sake as Gentiles. God did that to bring you in. But God's not done with them. There's going to come a day he's going to bring them in. Why? For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God didn't make a mistake when he called Abraham out of pagan darkness and promised him that he would become a people. He says, for as ye in times past have not believed, yet now have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. In other words, used to be Gentiles, didn't know who God was, but because of, of them, their unbelief, you received mercy from the Lord. Even so now have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. In other words... <laughs> Jews had this elementary relationship with God. Uh, they never achieved that adoption of a full relationship with the Lord through the works of, of the law. It didn't have the capacity to justify them. It couldn't do it. But through their rejection of the Messiah, he was crucified, buried, rose again the third day, and now is able to save any and all that will come unto him. And now that's being manifest, of course, in a people being called out unto his name amongst the Gentiles. But incidentally, that is also the way that Israel's going to get in at the end of the tribulation period. Had they not in their unbelief rejected him, they would have forever been, been, been held in that, in that elementary stage of relationship. I'll tell you, a beautiful type of that is God driving Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Had they went and partook of the tree of life after having partook in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
All they would have had would have been knowledge of God, but not a relationship with God. And they would have lived eternally in that state. But because they were driven from that place, the promise of a seed that would crush the head of the serpent was able to be fulfilled. And now the fallen of Adam's race can be redeemed and know God in a meaningful, full way. God's doing the same thing in Israel as a people. I love how Paul ends it, and I'll end it here. He says he just he just gets in the glory, man. I mean, that's the only way to say it. I mean, he just gets in the glory patch and runs and does a backflip. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul says when you step back and look at it, you have to say this. Nobody but God could have done it so well. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for the word of God. Help us to rightly understand it and learn it and apply it in our lives for your pleasure and for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.